What's good, my dear language learning masters, and welcome to Natural Languages, and welcome to a new interview of the Language Input Podcast. And in today's video, I'm going to have Liam, and he's originally from Ireland, but he lives in Switzerland, and he teaches Spanish and French there. And, you know, he's got a lot of wonderful insights when it comes to the language acquisition process. So I'm, I'm sure you're going to enjoy this interview a lot. You know, you're going to learn a lot from it. So with that being said, let's get right into it. Let's go. Okay. So hi, Liam, and welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. It's nice to be a, a guest on a podcast and not presenting for once. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, um, just, you know, first of all, just tell us a bit about yourself, uh, you know, especially when it comes to, to languages, your experience as a, as a language student, as a teacher, sure. what comes to your mind? <laughs> so, yeah, I guess I, so I'm Irish originally, um, but I've been living in Switzerland for about uh, nine years now. So I guess I got interested in languages when I was quite young. My sister had been to uh, Germany and was studying fr French and German at university. And she's quite a lot older than I am. And so when she came back and she was speaking like really good French and like, we went to visit her in Germany, I, I think that sparked a kind of a love of languages for me. But also I grew up in a, in a bed and breakfast in a B&B. &B, and so we always had people in the house from different countries. And so, you know, my mum would always try and speak a little bit of French or German or Spanish with the guests in the morning, just one or two sentences. And I think all of that kind of helped me to see that there was real value in it, particularly for building relationships and making friends and getting to know people. So I, that's how I, I think I enjoyed it. I did French and German at school and Irish and English. So I actually had took four languages for my, what we would call in Ireland, the leaving certificate, which is similar to A-levels in the UK. And uh, then after that, I took a year out from, I didn't go to university straight away. I took a gap year and I went to uh, France and I worked in a bar so I could go snowboarding every day and just like learn a bit of French. So I, I, I lived up in the mountains in a, in a small hotel and uh, worked as a bartender for the year. Um, and that's where I, I really picked up a lot of French there. And so then I went back to university and I studied business with French and Spanish. So I took up Spanish when I was about 19 or 20 in university. And I majored in Spanish, um, so I did my Erasmus year, my third year of university in Malaga, in Spain. Right. Uh, en el sur. And, um, <laughs> so I, I absolutely loved it. I just completely adored the place, loved Spanish, loved languages, and that's really what got me into it. So after I finished university, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Um, I traveled quite a lot. I was a snowboard instructor for years uh, in New Zealand, in Canada, in Switzerland. Um, and on the side, to make a little bit of extra money, I was teaching French and Spanish to adults just to try and make a little bit of extra cash. Um, and I realized just how I really loved it. I loved teaching languages. I loved seeing the progress. I really enjoyed it. And I had done a year of maternity leave cover in Ireland teaching French as well before I went. Um, so then, yeah, I decided to go back to university um, when I was about 26 or 27, I can't remember, maybe a bit older, uh, to, to do my kind of master's in teaching. Um, so I did that at the postgraduate diploma in education in Ireland for, with teaching French and Spanish. And then I got the job here in Switzerland, and this is what took me over here. And in between that, at some stage, I had um, uh, my own business with my uh, brother-in-law. We started a business 
which was um, an education and training company. And I was doing language courses for students who were preparing for exams, but also for adults as well. And so I think that's how I got into it. So I got into actually teaching in a secondary school setting, probably quite late in comparison to most people at the age of about 28 or 29. Um, but actually, I had been teaching languages in, 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 with adults um, and, and through snowboarding as well. I was obviously teaching a lot. So, so yeah, that's kind of how I got into it. And I, so I speak um, English, obviously, is my first language. Irish would be my second language uh, and then French and Spanish. And then I speak German and Portuguese as well, but not as, not as good as French and Spanish, just out of, of practice. I don't practice them very much. Mm, that's awesome. That's quite a journey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Right. <laughs> And well, I mean, I, I actually started teaching at 20, 29 as well. All right, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you never know what's what's gonna happen, you know, when no. when you're gonna find out what you're really about, you know, what you're really passionate about. And exactly. And like what did you do you use comprehensible input right away in your classes? Or uh, you know, there was a moment in which you just realize because you know for the most part we we've all had the same type of education when it comes to languages right like the traditional grammar approach so there was a moment in which it just clicked for you or how was it yeah i think that that's a really good question like i think um for me i was i guess i was teaching in what you would call a traditional sense mm -hmm. uh, when i was in ireland so when i finished my training in ireland and when i was doing the maternity cover for french i was teaching in the way i was taught uh, which was lists of vocabulary, lots of grammar and translation. Um, and excuse me, I think I'm going to sneeze. Oh, excuse me, Alvaro. Um, <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, I've got a bit of allergies and this is the time of year for that. So um, so sorry, what I was saying was, yes, I, I taught in a, what I would say is a traditional way at the beginning of my language teaching career, for sure. And I think I felt like I was doing a really good job. You know, I felt like I was teaching the students like really clearly the grammar. They were understanding the grammar. Mm -hmm. They were getting it. Um, you know, I felt like I was doing a good job, you know, that things were going well. But of course, I was still speaking loads of English in my classes because I was explaining grammar and setting up tasks. And it was only when I moved to Switzerland and the teacher who was head of department here in Switzerland, um, she had done some training in comprehensible input methods and particularly in using teaching with co-created stories like TPRS. And so I attended some of her classes and I was just blown away by how engaged the students were, how motivated and how much they could do after yeah. just like two months. You know, they were speaking, outputting, listening, understanding stuff that was taking me like two years to try and get to. And I was, I was just blown away by it. So then she organized a variety of training sessions. We had Beth Skelton come to us first, I think it was. Uh, Grant Boulanger came uh, and actually Blaine Ray came as well to our school. So we had a variety of people come and do trainings with us for a few days. And so with each one, I got a little bit better and tried a few more things out. And that's how I got into it. Bit by bit, I started changing my, my, my teaching. I think at the beginning, of course, you're afraid to kind of get rid of everything that you do, which is normal. Mm -hmm. It's okay mm -hmm. to just change one small thing. Right. And so I think I was probably doing a few stories, but still with a lot of kind of grammar translation techniques on the side. And it was just over time that I think I really started to develop more into being much more focused on providing the students with lots and lots of compelling, interesting, comprehensible inputs and doing less and less and less of grammar accuracy, particularly in the first and second year. 
Um, and then as we get into year three and four, we can start to look into the accuracy a bit more and the students are a bit more curious about it as to why is this like this and why is this like this? And now we can start to get into it because they've had two years of loads of rich inputs. They can really understand, they can follow everything that's going on in the class. Mm -hmm. They can use the language in, in, in a way to communicate. And now we can start to look at more of the specifics. So, so that's how I got into it really. And I'm very thankful to to the school I worked at, which was Lausanne American School at the time in, in Switzerland, and just how many trainers they organized to come to us because completely changing your practice and changing your deeply held beliefs about the way things happen, it mm. takes time. It's not easy. It, you have to really unravel things. It takes a long time. So I, I'm thankful that they provided so much training for us because I do think you do need the training to really, to really become proficient at it. It's not something you can just do the next day and it's going to be perfect, of course. Right. Yeah, yeah, of course. And yeah, I've, I've talked about it many times, like uh, when, when I'm, you know, I'm always criticizing the traditional grammar approach and, <laughs> and I'll continue to do so because I just think that's not the way to learn language. But what I want to emphasize again is I'm not criticizing teachers here because I, I know for fact, like for, for the most part, um, they try to do their best. They just, Absolutely. the traditional grammar approach is so dominant that, you know, that's what you got when you were a student yourself, when, when you went on to college or master's degree or whatever it was. To become a teacher, that's what you got again and your first experiences. So, you know, I, I want to be clear on that, that I know most of them do their best. Like my mom was a French teacher in, in college, actually in Spain. And same thing, you know, she tried different things, but it just, like most teachers, they just don't know an alternative. Like yeah. we don't know an alternative for the most part. And to me, the thing that I've talked about it as well, but the thing that clicked for me was when, when I started learning Polish here in Poland, right. because again, you know, as a native Spanish speaker, when you try to learn English or French, you know, languages with a lot of cognates and similar words, you can sort of fool yourself for a while. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but when I started learning Polish and like a completely different language with um, pretty funny grammar and stuff like that, <laughs> I, I started to realize that mm, yeah. you know, this, this cannot be the way. Like, yeah. There's no way I'm, I'm walking down the street, you know, trying to talk to someone and I need to consciously think about all the specific rules, you know, whether... Yeah. Because uh, it's like Latin or other languages, it has cases, the core cases, yeah. right? So I need to think, okay, so this specific word uh, has this specific function in this sentence. So I need to use this case yeah. because the word is masculine, feminine, and neutral. Yeah. I need to change the ending. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. By, by just like... I, yeah. By the time I come up with the, with the right answer, the other person just... Yeah. Two miles away. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's like that from Dr. Stephen Krashen's kind of uh, monitor hypothesis that he talks about that, that, mm -hmm. you know, if we're trying to speak and we're constantly trying to monitor the grammar we're using, and am I doing this right or that right? Of course, it's going to impede your communication. It's going to impede your confidence. And really, like, it's, it's better just to get loads of the inputs and kind of muddle it all up at the beginning and it'll, it'll get better over time. And, and yes, okay. It can be useful to know some of the grammar rules when you're writing and you have time to think about it. But when we're speaking and trying to communicate, we just we need the inputs first. We need to build those inputs first and then we can start to look at that. You know, like yeah. it's a crazy thing if you think about it, that you would 
you know, for example, if it was like, I don't know, like the mechanics of a car that you would teach like every single tiny component of the car, like this screw screws in like this and it goes this way and that way. And, but you've never seen the car move. You've never seen the engine work. You've never seen anything go. And you're kind of like, what? Like, how does this all go together? You're much better seeing the whole engine work over and over and over again. And then going, so this screw leads to this screw and this one brings over to this bit. That like, it just makes sense. It's crazy to think that we would break down a language into like all these tiny little rules and patterns of which they've just been kind of made up over time. Mm -hmm. And then try and say, now I want you to piece all that together and speak, speak really well, even though they've not heard the language enough times. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's just not how it works, you know. No. <laughs> yeah. It's, I don't know, I guess, like a conscious adult con uh, attempt to control the process, you know. It's just, but, yeah, I was going to say something, I forgot. <laughs> well, uh, I'll jump in because I think one of yeah. the things that is really interesting for me is that, is that you're right, it's the dominant practice. But the thing that I find really challenging is when people say, oh, but no, we need to teach the grammar first. We need to do this is like what we're doing currently in schools across the world mm -hmm. is pretty much not working because most people do not leave their school as a fluent speaker and a, and a confident communicator. It's very rare that you get that maybe one or two percent of the really, really, really motivated and engaged ones. But the other 97, 98%, they just drop it. They're not leaving commu uh, strong communicators. And how many times do you meet people in your life who say, oh, yeah, I did English at school, but I, I couldn't do it. Or oh, I did Spanish at school and, you know, I, I did it for six years, but I can't say a sentence. It's like that is an absolute, you know, that's a damning indictment on us and our profession. If we're teaching stuff for six years and the person can't have a basic conversation at the end of it that's not learned off by heart. Mm -hmm. Like we have to change something. We can't just keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting it to get better. Like exactly. something has to dramatically change. Yeah, that's actually, it was Einstein who said yeah. that's the definition of insanity, right? Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, mean- he's Quite a smart man, we should maybe listen to him. Yeah, yeah. like, yeah, you mentioned like only two, three percent get to actually communicate in the language after all those years. And I would even argue that if you analyze those specific cases, in, you know, deeply, there is, you know, they probably get to communicate because they're listening to music in their spare time. Or yeah. if you analyze every individual case, you know, yeah. you, you pro you'll probably notice certain yeah. activities or you know or or they, they're getting exposed to to the language in a different way yeah. that you're not aware of and that's actually what's helping them not yeah. not not because they're smarter or you know they work harder or whatever it is it just it's just not how it works and yeah what i what i wanted to mention before is um like you and you know people listening you've probably noticed that when when someone when most people speak in a foreign language they have a sort of like a broken speech you know like it's a lot of pauses and and that's why they're trying to access that conscious knowledge that they got from traditional yeah. classes right it just it just doesn't work that way you know yeah. and that that's why you need to think about every single thing you want to say and that's why yeah. after i don't know 20 minutes your head is like exploding. Yeah. It's like, yeah, exactly. give me a break, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's what I wanted to mention. And and e even with 
with kids and the native language because like this is um, I, I've talked about it as well, but this is my my feeling. My, no, so I, I haven't read any <laughs> any studies on it. So it's my feel. I, I'm starting to believe that conscious grammar study actually gets in the way. Yeah, well, that's. I mean, you'd be uh, there. Are, there is research around that, and 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 Stephen Krashen talks about this as well. And they've looked into a lot of this research. That yeah, um, I think there was. I can't. Remember, there was something I read really recently about this about effect sizes. Uh, of 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 teaching strategies around vocabulary, and it was for English actually. But mm -hmm. but explicit grammar instruction was one of the only things in this list of strategies that actually made the students go backwards mm. instead of helping them. So like everything else, like whatever it was, like videos and songs and conversations and all these different things. I need to find that it was on Twitter. Someone shared it. Uh, they, that they, this was a meta analysis. They all helped in some way or form. And listening to stories and interesting things was the thing that helped the most. Mm -hmm. But actually, the one thing that that made students go backwards was explicit, out of context grammar instruction. Yet this is the dominant thing in our classrooms. It's 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 really disheartening to see, you know. And that's that's why I started the Motivated Classroom podcast because I had just done my doctorate and I had learned all this stuff and read all this stuff, and I was like, more people need to know about this. But of course, if you publish nobody really gets access to published papers or very few people yeah. whereas on a podcast i thought okay more people can listen to this and it seems like many people are listening and at least it's making people question the way that they do things and slowly try and look at the way different things are done and i know a variety of people have gotten in contact with me saying that their tutor or the person who's leading their postgraduate studies in education so these are trainee teachers have been told to listen to the podcast so that's quite that's quite i i get a great amount of hope from that because i think well if they're at least listening to this and thinking about the fact that we need lots of comprehensible inputs and and fun interesting compelling inputs that are rich in cultural knowledge and rich in in, in diversity all these things that can really attach to our students well then we're going to have lots of students who are really into the language who want to keep going with it who leave the school as fluent speakers you know so hopefully we can get to that place right yeah, because it, it doesn't feel like learning to them. That's exactly. that the thing. Yeah. And yeah, the, the reason why I mentioned that is because, like, you know, when when you when you get in traditional grammar classes, it's you, you you're learning to pay attention to form as opposed to meaning to communication, which is the most important thing, right? Yeah. And, and the process by which we all acquire a native language, by the way. <laughs> so it's not that we're making something crazy up right here. Right? Um, but, oh, again, I forgot <laughs> <laughs> what was going on today. There was something along those lines. Yeah, like, um, yeah, sorry, like when, when I talk about this, like, again, it's just my feeling because um, I, I've seen it in, my, in the languages that I speak. Uh, I started to notice this because I started learning Italian a few years ago. And when I started with Italian, I already knew about comprehensive input and so on. So I started, I started from scratch, but I, I've, I've, I haven't had a single second of traditional grammar yeah. <laughs> study in, in that language. And as opposed to that, when it comes to French and Portuguese, so I'm talking about related languages. Yeah. So there's not the argument of, you know, but Italian's so similar to, to, to Spanish. Mm. With Portuguese and French, 
I know what actually helped me acquire the language, of course, but to some extent, I did learn some grammar before yeah. because, you know, I started before I knew about Stephen Krashen and mm -hmm. Comprehensible Input and so on. And I have the feeling that I'm more fluent in Italian because I, I don't have that conscious knowledge to sort of rely on. Mm. So whenever I want to communicate, I just use whatever comes out naturally. You know what I mean? And when it comes to French and Portuguese, there's still that little bit of grammar instruction that makes me pause sometimes when we're not about to speak. So that, that's why I've been thinking about it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and also, yeah, sorry to interrupt. Like also, when when I talked about this, when I talk about this, many people tell me like, yeah, but you know, kids acquire the native language that way, but then they have grammar in in, in you know primary school and so on. And thinking about it, well, first of all, they get grammar instruction, like conscious grammar instruction, after they're perfectly fluent in the language. That's the first important point. And second, we actually give those um, classes the credit <clears throat> because it's it's easier to measure, right? <clears throat> but we, I, I don't think it's helping that much. That's my theory again. You know, like yeah. we, we give that the credit, but I don't think it's helping that much. And we, we, we forget about, you know, just their parents reading them stories. Yeah. When, when that's it. I, I think that's exactly it and I, I was working with um, some teachers in a school in China and we were talking about I was asking them when they were children and they went into school because we were talking about the difference between using um, pinyin which is kind of like the phonetic spelling of the word versus uh, writing characters mm -hmm. and I was asking them well when did they in their own schooling get exposed to characters and they were saying, well, very early on, like right at the beginning, you know, we maybe saw a few things in Pinyin, but it was very quickly into the characters because they said we had already a very good level of Chinese. We'd grown up in a house and listened to it a lot. We'd already listened to it loads. And I was like, that's exactly it. Yeah. You, you listened to it loads in your house and then you were ready to kind of learn about the characters and the grammar and how things work together. So we can't expect to kind of change that around just because someone is learning a second language. It's what Dr. Florentia Henshaw talks a lot about is we need to build the system and then we can develop the language. But to build the system, you need loads and loads and loads of inputs constantly. And, you know, I've had this sometimes when I've had teachers come to observe me, you know, and they have kind of said on oh, a 45 minute period, you know, they're like, well, your students didn't really write much down. They only wrote like two words down and they just spent the whole time kind of most of the time just listening. Like they had a few bits of interaction between themselves but you know you need to get them talking much more and and I'm trying to say to them but you know they need the inputs they need to listen like the fact that entire 45 minutes was in Spanish like there was maybe 30 seconds of English when I was yeah. translating that was it so for 44 and a half minutes of the 45 minutes they were listening to Spanish they were listening to the same things over and over again they were listening to a story they were then telling it back to each other they were listening again they were currently building the system and it's almost to try and get teachers to be like, oh, okay. Because there's a feeling that like, if they're not speaking to each other immediately, right at the start in full sentences and doing fill the gap exercises, mm -hmm. they're not learning. And mm -hmm. that is just so false. I'm like, well, come back at the end of the year and mm -hmm. have a look at what these students can do, you know, because that's, right. people have that fear that if they're not outputting immediately, then they're not learning. And my students do output immediately, like right at the beginning, but in a very, 
safe environment between each other and with lots of scaffolding. So it yeah. might be the simplest thing. I've just told them, okay, there's a man, he lives in a blue house. Uh, he has five dogs and one horse. And we've done this a little bit. Their output might be, uh, okay, with your partner, uh, what, what was the number five? What did we use with the number five? And they may turn around, look at the board for the word and say, horses or dogs or, or yeah. blue house. That's still output, but they're listening and listening and they have really scaffolded output. And of course, as time goes on, they start to form full sentences. They start to make them longer at when they're ready. But rather than saying like, okay, now turn to your partner and tell them all about your own house and all uh, tell them five things about your house, all your animals. They're like, I, I don't know that. You know, I don't know those words. I haven't heard those words before. So yeah, it's, it's, it is a mindset change and it's difficult. But I think the work you're doing, the work, you know, many, many other people are doing is, is, is helping with that. Yeah, and, and the, the thing I usually talk about is, I think we, we adults, we're, we, we want to always consciously control things and every process is, right? Every process, sorry. So the, the, the thing is, if you go to a traditional grammar class and you memorize a vocabulary list or you learn two new grammar rules, you go home and you, ha you have the feeling you've gotten this much better. Right, mm. we all know that that you know that's not going to lead you to actually communicate in the language, yeah. right? But the thing with comprehensible input, which again is nothing but the way we all acquire native language, is not so easy to measure it, right? Yeah. You can just go home. So today, I you know I acquire this much. Mm. It it's a subconscious process that's yeah. actually going on without you even noticing, which can be scary but it's actual news. <laughs> so what's interesting in that though is, is one of the best things I love internet thing, one of the most internet, one of the most interesting things uh, about that is, is with my beginners when we've done our first story and we've done like a reading together where they kind of do what, what is called like a ping pong reading or volleyball reading. So they read the sentence in Spanish, translate to either their native language or English, the next person reads in Spanish, translates, and they kind of translate it. And they'll take that text home and I get them to read it to their parents or whoever's in the house and translate each sentence into their native language. And they do that after like, you know, three weeks. And it's a whole page of a story. And that's really builds their confidence and their confidence because they can see, wow, I can understand this whole page and translate it. And I've only been doing it for a few weeks. Right. And I think the parents see that too. So it's, yeah, sometimes I say things to them like, you know, at the end of a half an hour class or something, I might stop the class and say, you know, guys, are you understanding everything I'm saying? And they'll be like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, what was I saying about the boy in the house? And saying, oh, it's blue house and he's five horses and two animals and stuff. And I say, and I might just say to them, you know, that's amazing. You guys have only been doing Spanish for three months and look how much you can understand. And it's almost bringing it consciously to them that the understanding is really important. Right, right, right. And they kind of go, oh yeah, oh, I can understand a lot actually. And it's trying to say, that's really important too. If you can understand it, eventually you're going to be able to use it, you know? And sometimes we have to draw the student's attention to that. Right, right, right. No, because, but I think that's good news because they're so immersed in the story that exactly. they kind of forgot that they were listening to a different language. Exactly. exactly. That's why you, you have to bring it to their conscious, uh, yeah. right? Yeah. But yeah, when it comes to what, what you said that, you know, they're, they're just not communicating or whatever that was. I always talk about the example, you know, we just trust the process when it comes to babies, yeah. right? 
So nobody would think about, you know, their six month uh, um, son or daughter. Yeah. Come on, say something. What's wrong yeah, with yeah. you? You know, no, nobody does that. Yeah, <laughs> we, just, yeah. we just trust the process and we know eventually they're going to start communicating. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, nobody in his right mind would say to, to his son or daughter, what's wrong with you? You know, yeah. <laughs> just, and you know what's interesting about that, Alvaro, as well, is sometimes when I say this to people, um, some people kind of respond by going, yeah, but, you know, like, as adults, like we've already learned a, another language, we are, our cognitive ability is much better, so we're okay to learn the grammar and we can we can learn the rules and it's different. And then you say, yeah, but I understand that. But then if, if a baby who is cognitively way behind where you are as an adult can acquire a first language with very, very little cognitive abilities, they can hardly walk, they fall over, they, they don't know about dangers in their life. These are basic <laughs> things that they do not know yet they can acquire a language naturally, surely as a cognitive adult, you can do that. You know, really? like that's, I sometimes they make some rethinking and go, oh yeah, like a baby's brain is, is very, it's not very developed, right. but it can develop a language within two years or three years. Surely as a, not an adult with all the cognitive processes you've going on, you can do that too. And they're like, oh yeah, okay. You know, right. some, it kind of like flips the argument on its head. Like, oh, it's different mm -hmm. for babies, you know, well, you know, you've got a, a much more developed brain, so right, I'm pretty sure right. you can do this too. Yeah, and and your knowledge of the world is so much greater that yeah. there's just so many more things you can understand because of you know real life scenarios, yeah. context, and yeah, that, you know, kids. The thing is that they their the brain is not developed, so they don't have the ability to sort of mess up with the process and try to consciously control it. That's the problem <laughs> with adults, right? that we also have the ability to control the process, which yeah. messes up with the whole thing. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just there's so, so many more things that we can understand. Like I said, you know, yeah. you can listen to a podcast about a topic that you're interested in. And because of your knowledge of the world, you understand what's going on because, yeah. you know, you just have real life contacts. And that bit about the, the babies is, is really interesting because in, in, uh, Dr. Bill Van Patten and Dr. Karen Lichtman's paper last year on Stephen Crash and 40 years later, was he right? They, they talk quite a lot um, at the end about the natural order hypothesis. And they're pretty much saying that that's pretty much a fact now that we do learn things in a kind of a, a natural order when it comes to acquisition. But that does not mean that you organize your, your textbook in this order because you can't really do that. Right. Because the natural order, uh, which I found really fascinating, I'd read about it in college, but hadn't read about it since, this idea of that when you acquire language, you will start with the really difficult rules and you will say them correctly. So for example, in English, you know, you might say like a baby just learning the language will, will start to say things like, you know, I went uh, and, and they'll say these things correctly because they've heard it lots of times. But then with more inputs, they hear, you know, walked, uh, they hear like all the other verbs that end in ED. And then the, the baby's brain goes, they're all past tense, like walked and all these different verbs. So now maybe it must be gold. So it must be I gold because I've heard walked and all these other verbs so many times with ED at the end, it must be that. So they then they go into errors and they start saying, I gold, I gold. And of course, as the parents, uh, you're kind of going, oh, what? Like you were saying I went a few months ago and now you're saying I gold, like what happened? <laughs> and then they go back with more inputs to go, oh no, actually that's an irregular. And, and, and that's I went, because I've heard it enough times. 
and now they go back. So they have this curve that goes down and then up. Mm-hmm. And that happens in second language acquisition too. Exactly. So students start being very accurate with some things when they've just heard it, but then they start to make rules and they start to do things and they start to go backwards a bit and to not have that fear and go, it's okay. As you said, trust the process. Mm-hmm. Lots more inputs, they'll come out the other side. And, yeah. and that's a really important thing that all teachers should know about, that this is a natural order. It happens when we're in our first language. It happens in our second language to not fear that when the mistakes start to creep in that you didn't have in the in the first year, there's mistakes there that they're starting to make. You know, they might say in Spanish, you know, um, mi amigo tengo, or, you know, yo tiene, yo tiene. I hear that a lot. They'll start the year really well by saying yo tengo, yo tengo, yo tengo, which for those who don't speak Spanish means I have. Mm-hmm. And you're going, yeah, great. And then they hear lots more inputs. They hear more stories with tiene and they start to go, yo tiene, yo tiene, which means I, he has. And you're like, oh no, what's happened? Trust the process. Keep right. giving them the yo tengo and then they'll come back and go, oh, it's yo tengo, mi hermano tiene. Ah, okay. But just trust the process. Right. And, and the even better news is that happens in your brain without actually you being aware of it. Exactly. You know, like, exactly. You don't need to pay attention to that. It's happening. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's it, with when it comes to Spanish it, with babies, with kids, it happens. Every, I think to every single kid, they say rompido or, yeah. or broken. It's the same yeah. thing. Like, you know, they just hear comer comido, bebido. And they just make it, I mean, their brain makes it out. The brain develops the language world without having to consciously study it, which is actually news again. And then, you know, with enough repetitions and to, you know, when they they listen to that specific word correctly many times in context, they'll eventually produce it the right way. And imagine, you know, with a baby, when a baby is saying that, you know, bebido, comido, Eh, aprendido and then they go with rompido which mm-hmm. for those who don't speak spanish is incorrect it should be roto it's irregular mm-hmm. but imagine if a parent sat down and went okay here's a list of all the regular past participles hecho dicho puesto roto you would never do that what does the parent do they just reply with the correct version their, their kid says a rompido and then you go oh has roto ese you know you say the correct version and then the kid hears it enough times goes oh it's roto and they just make that themselves and that's comprehensible inputs that's how we need it to be in the classroom and that ties really closely in with motivation because there's many many studies showing us that if we overcorrect, then you're going to damage the student's competence but if you just give them the right version when you're speaking in your inputs they'll get it so rather than you stopping no 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 it's not rompido it's roto remember our list of irregular verbs they're like oh i failed again i didn't do it right just yeah. respond with the right version. You don't need to point it out. They say, oh, yo he rompido mi brazo. You know, I broke my arm. You say, no, ah, oh, bueno, has roto el brazo. ¿Qué pasó? You know, you give them the right version, they start to make those links, and then that's how it works, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's uh, the, the dangers of error correction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and also the problem with the traditional grammar approach is you know, first of all, it doesn't work that way. But also, if you if you think your students should communicate pretty much from day one, and and you tell them about that, and you know, even without them noticing, because they've been taught that way, you know, and they think they should be able to communicate pretty much from day one, like I said, and because they they can't, 
you know, there's nothing wrong with them. It's just not how it works. Yeah. In the end, they start thinking that it's their fault, yeah, even yeah. subconsciously, right? Yeah. So that's why a lot of people, you, you hear a lot of people talk about, oh, I'm not talented for languages or I'm not yeah. good at languages. I mean, it's just not for me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't work that way, fortunately. You know, we yeah. all have that ability. And yeah. I think that's important because I, I, you know, it just, it breaks my heart when someone says that because yeah. I, I wish I could just transfer some knowledge to them right away to tell them, no, <laughs> you yeah, know, like, yeah. believe me, like I, I had English for 15 years in throughout my whole education system, throughout the whole education system. And I could pass pretty much any grammar exam and I, I just couldn't speak the language. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And so what I mean is, I went from that to now speaking seven languages, enjoying yeah. every single minute of it, loving it, and yeah. I'm never gonna stop because I, like I said, I love every single minute of it. Yeah. I enjoy yeah, it. And, and so what, what I mean is, it's not a, I was talented for languages from, from the game, yeah. you know? Yeah. You know, that's, that's really important, I think. And uh, yeah, and are you, learning any other languages now or well at the moment i'm i'm not really like i would be like i i'm always kind of my ears open to new languages and different things but right now i'm mainly concentrating on a little bit of italian on the side um but not i wouldn't say like i'm really i'm not like reading or listening to too much italian like doing a little bit of duolingo and like you know when i go to italy I, i'll try and read all the signs and read little things try and pick things up but uh, in general, like because I'm a, a non-native Spanish speaker, you know, I Spanish teacher and French teacher, I, I try and concentrate a lot on those. So I'm obviously teaching in Spanish the whole day and I'd be watching a lot of Spanish movies, a lot of books, like uh, and the same with French. And that takes up quite a lot of my time. But I, I still try and get a bits of German here as well, because we live in Switzerland. So there's German here. So um, but it is something Italian is the next one that I would really like to, to start to work on. Um, but I'd love to, as you said, with Polish, I'd love to have a go at a kind of a learning language that's very, very different. Um, I mean, Irish, Gaelic Irish is completely different to other ones, but I would love to learn, you know, maybe something like Russian or Ukrainian or, or Polish or something to, and to, to have a go at it. But it's trying to find that time to really immerse myself in the inputs is the, is the difficult part. Yeah, yeah it is. it's a matter of time in the end. You know, yeah. to, you're getting comprehensible input, which is the most important thing. It's a matter of time. Oh. Yeah, exactly. Alvaro, I'm going to just close the window. Is that okay? Because there's a lot right. of noise coming in here. Go ahead. Go ahead. Edit this part, right? <laughs> yeah, I can think about other things. Okay, so I don't know if you had one last question because I'll probably have to go in, in the next few minutes. Okay, no, no, I, I was just gonna ask you about where you live in Switzerland, like is it is German spoken in that area or Italian or French or? It's where I live is French. So okay. it's French speaking where I am, but um, Switzerland's a, a relatively small country. So you, once you're on the train for like an hour, you're in the German speaking parts. Mm -hmm. um, and it is funny, it really goes from French to German, just one stop on the train, it just completely changes. And the same with Italian. Um, but we're going to Italy. We live quite close to the northern border of Italy, so you can get the train there quite easily. And um, so we're going to be going there again. And I, we probably go to Italy like once a year, maybe I'd say to the north of Italy, maybe twice a year. And I would normally always go to Spain at least once or twice a year. 
um, to visit friends. I have really good friends living in Cordoba and in, in Madrid and Malaga. Um, mm -hmm. But with, with the pandemic, of course, that's been really, really difficult. Yeah. So we're really hoping to get back to Spain uh, this year. Um, just again, for me to be around the culture, to be around, you know, people speaking it all the time and to immerse myself a bit more in the inputs. And um, that's something that I want to try and do, um, hopefully, hopefully this year. So. Perfect. All right. So, yeah, no, that, that was it. Thank you so much. It was Perfect. wonderful. And uh, yeah, like uh, I, I'll, I'll leave the links to your podcast in the description Perfect. and any, any other website or social media that you want me to link Perfect. up to, just let me know and Sounds I'll leave it down below. All right, cool, man. Muchas gracias. And uh, I'll, yeah, I'll send you the links and uh, I might send you a little, a little uh, introduction or something and you can include that. Too, sure, so. whatever okay. you want to include there. Cool. All right. Muchas gracias, Alvaro. <laughs> Ciao. Ciao, Liam.